Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Thanks again to our Patreon subscribers. We really, really appreciate your support. For less than the cost of a cup of coffee, you can hear us talk about more interesting engineering failures. And those mini failure episodes come out on opposite Sundays from our regular episodes, so you would get an episode from us every week. And the mini failures are either failures that have pretty straightforward causes or not enough information for a full episode, but are still really, really interesting things that we want to talk about. And we also go into a little bit more background information. We dive into things that are interesting, but maybe not directly related or only partially related to the failure itself, but are still really, really interesting that we want to talk about. Those episodes are a little more casual, I guess you could say. So if you if you want to hear from us every week, as well as support our show, please check out our Patreon. It's only $5 a month Canadian, and that's not going to change. All right, on to this week in engineering news, or interesting things we have recently read about and want to share with you. This week, we are going to talk about smartwatches for dolphins. Not technically smartwatches for dolphins, but it's pretty close to a smartwatch for a dolphin. I mean, technically dolphins can't tell time, at least as far as I know. They are pretty smart though, so they may be able to tell time. But think about all the other things your watch does, like counts your steps, your heart rate, your stress, your sleep. It's It does all of those things. So this is this is actually a monitoring device for, for dolphins and, and I guess it, at some point probably other animals as well. So these wearables for dolphins, uh, they can estimate how much energy the dolphins use while they're swimming and, I guess, doing other activities. And this uh, this study comes from the University of Michigan in Dolphin Quest Oahu, where they've developed wearables, or um, as they're also known, uh, biologging tags, to monitor dolphin behavior and movement. As I'm sure everyone's aware, animal habitats, they are impacted by a number of factors, including climate change, shipping, overfishing, oil exploration, construction, just to name a few. And since the dolphins live underwater for the most part, it's a lot harder for us as humans that live on land for the most part to track how all these factors impact their ability to find food and socialize. So being a geomatics person, a geomatics engineer, I think this is really cool because there's there's also there's a biological component of, of the wearable, but then there's also the geographic or the geomatics side of things. So all of this has positional data to it. And then this can be overlaid or, or, you know, things like um, shipping routes or other migratory patterns can be overlaid with this dolphin data. And we can derive a whole bunch more information from this, this interface data. So scientists are trying to determine how much energy dolphins consume to forage for food and then extrapolate that to determine the energetic costs when the dolphins' habitats are disturbed or how much extra energy the dolphins use in an effort to find food when their habitats are disturbed in some way. They're also looking at it to determine how much energy the dolphins use to swim when they have to relocate because their habitat's been disturbed, which I think is really interesting. And I'd be curious to know what the data says. Unlike other tags that are similar to a piercing or embedded under the skin, the dolphin wearables sit between the dolphin's blowhole and fin and they're attached with suction cups. They're not invasive to the dolphin itself. Although I will say my dog has sunglasses, which are not invasive to her, uh, but she feels otherwise. So I don't know how much the dolphins like the suction cups, but they're better than some of the other methods, which are piercings or embedding under the skin. 
And these wearables measure speed, temperature, pressure, and movement as a way to calculate their energy consumption for doing the various things. While the study focuses on bottlenose dolphins for now, the technology can be extrapolated to many other animals in and out of water. The main thing that would really need to change is how the animal wears it or how it's attached to the animal. Obviously, suction cups aren't going to work on many other animals, so they'd have to find a new way to do that. But I do think this is really helpful information to better inform us on how we're impacting animals' habitats. I know on a, on a number of different land-based species um, for animals, the, the tracking technology back in the day was a radio collar. Now there are GPS collars that are used for tracking animals that are, that are on, on land. So for some animals, they have to be tranquilized before the collar can be applied um, onto them. But yeah, it's a fairly, it's not an invasive collar at all. Um, the animal just kind of wears it um, with, the, with the advanced battery technology over the last 30 years. Um, the GPS batteries last quite a bit longer and, and transmit signals. And it's actually really interesting. I've, I've looked at some studies for, um, you know, kind of wolf pack migratory patterns in various national parks in the States, as well as caribou habitat, um, you know, migrations. And it's, to me, it's really fascinating to see how all the animals move through, you know, throughout a year, through a couple of years, um, you know, for snowpack and vegetation as they kind of go through their routines. And then I think it's really interesting too, especially on the wolf pack side to see kind of the ranges of the wolf packs and how the the wolf pack ranges don't interact with other wolf packs. I think that's really, really interesting. And that's not something that we'd be able to, you know, easily see without having, you know, GPS or some sort of wearable tracking technology. So if you want to read more about this study on dolphin wearables, check out the link on the webpage for this episode at failureology.ca. Roberta Luongo's Bingo Bango Bingo Hall. If you've had a bad day, Come dab your troubles away. Try it on for size. You could even win a prize. Don't let this beach ball of an opportunity pass you by. Find a Roberto Luongo's Bingo Bango Bingo Hall near you. Now on to this week's engineering failure, the 2021 Texas Power Outage. Winter Storm Yuri formed on February 13, 2021 in the Pacific Northwest of the U.S., and it quickly moved into the southern U.S. and then over to the Midwest and northeastern U.S. a couple days later. The storm had 130 kilometer per hour winds for one minute sustained, and there were six confirmed tornadoes, up to 66 centimeters of snow in some areas, hundreds of deaths, and over 9 million people were without power, so just over half in the U.S. and the rest in Mexico of that 9 million people. Winter Storm Uri is the costliest winter storm on record. There was a really bad winter storm in 96 or 99 in Quebec. Uh, it was an ice storm and it knocked out uh, hydro or, or electricity throughout most of Quebec, a large part of Ontario and some of the northeastern U.S. And so this was, if this was the costliest winter storm on record, was worse than that. And I remember I lived through that storm and that storm was was really bad. So this one in Texas is is not good. Uh, and I don't think Texas has fully learned from the lessons they should have uh, after this storm. Even though the storm impacted most of the U.S., Texas got it worse due to some flaws in their energy infrastructure. And we're going to dive into a lot of those today. So a lot of the information that we got from this episode and about the storm comes from a University of Texas at Austin Energy Institute report, which was issued five months after the storm. And we're going to include a link to this report on the webpage for this episode, where we include all of our sources, as well as an episode summary and some images for each episode, just to help our listeners 
understand some of the things we're talking about. Some of these, I find in the structure ones, especially it's hard to, it's hard to explain exactly how the structure is supposed to be constructed versus what was wrong. And so I find the pictures are really helpful, but we do that for every episode. And the report outlines the objective, the participants and the information sources. So you can see who was involved in the study, who helped fund the study and all of the data that they used to to evaluate the storm. And so you can see any, if any, biases that may have existed in the report. So the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, known as ERCOT, is an independent system operator, which means it's a private sector operator, and they provide the majority of the state's consumers with power via an intrastate grid with limited interconnection to the two other main electrical grids that serve the U.S. and Canada. So the lines between the east and west grids of the U.S. and Canada isn't quite along state lines, but for the purpose of this discussion, everything west of and including Alberta, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico are on the west grid, and everything east of there is on the east grid. That's just a generalization so that you can kind of visualize where the division is. U.S. power generation began in the late 1800s with small power plants and local transmission. And as the individual systems grew, they started to connect together to create a stronger, more robust grid, which I think is a fantastic idea. Because if you lose a power plant in your area, you can still get electricity from other power plants in neighboring areas or maybe not even necessarily close by further away because you're all connected to the same grid. Everyone except Texas, that is. To avoid federal regulation in 1935, Texas didn't connect their network to the national grid. And from what I understand, for the most part, that still remains today. There is some interconnection between Texas and the West and East national grids, as well as the Mexican grid, but it's not enough to power all of Texas. And the Texas grid remains mostly isolated from the rest of the national network, which seems like a really bad idea. There was a lot of There's a lot of things that happened in this power outage that were bad, but this lack of redundancy by Texas not wanting to be part of the national system just seems like a silly decision to me. I'm sure it's not black and white and there's a lot of or there's a lot of other things that go into that decision to connect to the grid. But I don't understand why you wouldn't that want that redundancy in your system and to protect your state from a large scale power outage like they saw in February 2021. Deregulation of the Texas electricity market started in the 1990s, which offered retail competition and potentially lower fees for consumers, but this also meant cutting costs for contingency preparation, which is going to be fairly important in this um, in this power outage, and, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. So natural gas has been the main fuel source for power generation in Texas, although they have been very slowly working on a transition to renewable energy sources in recent years. So solar power, wind power, other renewable sources. So even though the natural gas and electricity sectors intersect in power generation, they are, at least in Texas, they are managed by two separate regulators. There is the Public Utility Commission of Texas, or the PUCT, which oversees the electricity services, and the Texas Railroad Commission, which oversees natural gas. Years ago, I looked at doing some work in, in Texas for, for land survey work. Um, the Texas Railroad Commission also regulates pipelines as well. I was very, very confused by this, and then I just stopped looking into it because it just seemed like a giant hassle to do anything related to surveying in Texas. It's actually not that confusing when you think about if the pipelines aren't there, how else do those resources get moved? And the answer is often railroad. 
if not railroad, then it's trucks. But railroad is probably the most common substitute to a pipeline. And so for those railroads to continue to move those resources, pipelines can't go in. And so I've heard that a lot of the protest for pipelines comes from the railroad industry. Amongst other things, of course, there's an environmental aspect. And I'm not saying I'm not saying I'm necessarily pro-pipeline. I just think we should choose whatever the method is safest. And based on all of the train derailments and environmental disasters that have happened lately throughout the U.S., which seems to be on an almost daily basis, pipelines aren't looking so bad right now. I mean, yes, they leak for sure. They have their issues. They're not a perfect system. But railroads have a lot of flaws. At least, I don't know if we're just seeing more of it now because we're aware of it, but it's it's bad. There's a lot of a lot of derailment. Ercot's meteorologists use models to predict weather events like winter storms, but even a day or two before the storm, the models that they were using disagreed on forecasted temperatures by as much as 5 degrees Celsius, and the actual temperatures were lower than the predictions by up to 12 degrees Celsius, which is fairly significant, especially in a place like Texas where the weather is I believe the weather is fairly consistent all year around in Texas. A fluctuation here in Canada, you know, 5 degrees, 12 degrees in the winter, that would probably be expected and, and accounted for in the model. But Texas, that has fairly consistent temperatures, missing out on forecast models, um, and especially disagreement between two models between 5 and 12 degrees Celsius, is very significant. Electrical load projections are based on weather forecasts, and the disagreement on the forecasts impacted ERCOT's ability to understand the load requirements that would be needed for this winter storm event. They quickly discovered the blackouts would be likely and at least 10% of the grid would be shut off, but the actual demand was higher than expected in extreme winter weather and they were not prepared for this. The demand was more than 12,000 megawatts higher than the grid's capacity and 3,200 megawatts higher than the previous record set. Although I'm not an electrical engineer, I do work with them a lot, but I'm definitely not one. And I don't have any experience with power generation, but as far as risk management, I don't understand, even if the forecasts show differing data, why wouldn't you look at the worst case scenario and then adjust for actual conditions? I mean, to put it again in black and white, if the worst case conditions say you need generation full scale generation from 10 plants, and then it turns out reality is that you only need eight or 80% of that, then you can run the plants at less capacity or you don't run all the plants. Like, I don't understand why you wouldn't plan for worst case and then adjust accordingly. That seems pretty straightforward to me. And I don't know why that wasn't done here. Yeah. And and this is a fairly extreme weather, you know, weather event for Texas, you know, a winter storm with a bunch of snow, not typical in Texas. And then, and, and we'll talk about this a little bit later. Also hindering Texas's ability is their lack of interconnect to the east or the west grid. Like if they realized that their power generation needs were going to um, exceed their generation capacity, they had such limited ability to bring in excess power from, you know, say a place like, you know, Montana or California that wasn't experiencing this winter storm event that could provide that, that excess capacity. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. So the storm, is, as, as I kind of mentioned, it did bring freezing temperatures in Texas, which is not a very typical thing for Texas. For a lot of us in Canada or listeners in Canada or, or other places around the world, we spend, at least in Canada, we spend like half our year at least in, you know, kind of a typical winter type storm condition. But we're used to it. Our, our structures, our infrastructure is set up to manage that. Texas that does not see winter storm conditions, they 
are not set up for dealing with these temperatures. Here in Canada, we have a lot of insulation in our houses. Um, you know, there's there's basements that are below grade. You know, we have heating systems that are that deal with winter weather. Um, a lot of houses here in, in Calgary where Nicole and I live, they don't have air conditioning or central air where, you know, in Texas and Arizona and, you know, a lot of southern states, having air conditioning is, is almost essential just so you can function on a day-to-day basis. So I've done work in California and it's it's always really confusing to me when they put water pipes outside because I don't, my brain doesn't really understand what it's like to live in a place that doesn't really have winter. And uh, I've been caught in that a few times where I just, I just, it doesn't compute for me. I've lived in Canada my whole life. We have winter every year. And so the thought of not having winter consistently is, is weird to me. So the thought that, that Texas doesn't really have allowances for winter is just confusing to me because why wouldn't you? Um, But this isn't something that happens every year. That said, this is not the first time a storm like this has happened. There have been storms historically that have been similar to the winter storm Yuri that have happened in Texas, and it doesn't seem like like they've necessarily learned from that. Brian mentioned air conditioning. I would have thought that since they had AC throughout the summer, that it would have been a much higher draw on the grid than the peak load during the winter storm. But I don't know how many houses have uh, have AC, how many of them are running their AC. It would be potentially expensive to to run consistently. And I also don't know how uh, their insulation or windows or other things factor into that. The other thing I I don't know is the air conditioning it's possible is much more efficient than the electric heaters that they use. When when people only run an electric heater a couple days out of the year, they're less concerned about how efficient it operates. And so if they just have standard electric resistance heaters, it's possible that they're very inefficient and that's why the the load was so much higher. I know here in Canada, you know, some people have, uh, like Nicole mentioned, these kind of little room heaters. They just have a have an electrical coil that you plug in or well, you plug them into the wall, there's an electrical coil that heats up. They're great for under your desk if your work allows them or if they have a safety shutoff feature for tilting, um, but they're not very efficient. They have a huge, huge power draw and they're not efficient the same way that, that central heating or you know a fan coil unit would be to, to heat up a unit. So we've talked about there being a number of outages across Texas and the power generation plants not being able to keep up with the load, but let's dig into what actually went down. So the wind turbines were the first to go, and that was thanks to freezing rain and fog, which formed ice on the blades, and then the cold temperatures impacted the gearbox and the nacelles. We did a two-part episode series on wind turbines that I thought was really interesting. I learned a lot about how wind turbines work and the things that make them go round. And so I think that if you haven't listened to that episode, I recommend going back to it and just getting a little bit more information on wind turbines themselves. Wind energy accounts for about 23% of Texas's power generation. There were fuel delivery issues, which impacted natural gas generators even before the storm hit. And this was made worse by the storm as processing plant outputs dropped by 85% as some compressors that push gas through the pipelines were disabled when the power was cut. You need the power to stay on to fuel the natural gas generators and to fuel the the other power plants that are there. And when that power gets cut, then the supply to those plants is no longer in place. And natural gas storage was also limited, so they were only able to live on what they had at each site for a very short amount of time. There were frozen water intakes, frozen sensing lines, and freezing of other general equipment throughout Texas's power grid. 
There were existing scheduled and planned outages or mothballed units that were unable to get back online on time. That's pretty standard. You you plan to take sections of your grid down during non-peak times to repair them or do preventative maintenance and make sure that when you need them, they're running. But unfortunately, they had planned these outages and weren't able to reverse them in time once they knew the storm was coming. Power generation plants experienced frequency issues as well as some of the transmission lines and substations experienced outages. And of the winterized generators, which wasn't all of them, but some of them, they were inadequately prepared for the winter conditions experienced. So even though they had been, quote, winterized, it wasn't enough for the temperatures and freezing rain that they saw during winter storm Yuri. For the equipment that was still running, the output was derated for the temperature. So equipment has an optimal operating temperature range. And when you go above or below that, the equipment starts to become less efficient and therefore its output capacity reduces in relation to temperature. Unrelated to this storm, but an interesting fact, fuel-burning appliances often derate for elevation as well as temperature. So in Alberta, Colorado, or other high-elevation areas, you need to use higher-elevation equipment, or you need to calculate what that derate is, and it's based on your elevation in meters or feet, and the manufacturer gives you different outputs for different elevations. And it's Outages accounted for up to 40% of ERICOT's infrastructure by February 15th, and the infrastructure didn't come back online fully until February 19th. Had one of the many issues that we listed been avoided, there might have still been blackouts. There probably still would have been blackouts, but their duration and severity would have likely been much lower. It was the perfect storm, really. And we've seen this time and time again, where it's never one thing that causes these catastrophic events. It's always a bunch of things that worked together to create this unfortunate scenario and had any of them or all of them been addressed this could have been avoided which is is just so frustrating but i can see how it happens because you think oh this one thing is small i don't need to address it it's going to be fine oh this other thing is small and maybe there's different parties that are looking at each thing and so there's no one really looking at the big picture of how all of these things can play together but i think that's a really important part of risk management is looking at all of the things that could go wrong planning for them, and coming up with a backup plan in case you can't. You know, maybe some of these items weren't avoidable. For example, the wind turbines, that's probably not uh, something that you can avoid. The freezing rain stopping the blades from turning is is probably a very challenging and costly thing to prevent from happening. But if you know that's a risk, then you can say, okay, that represents 23% of our grid. Therefore, we need to make sure we have backup up to 23% of that grid capacity from some other source. And what is that other source? And are they in play? And are they ready to go? This doesn't seem that difficult, but yet here we are. So with the demand continuing to rise and supply dropping, Aircut started to reduce the demand on the system to prevent catastrophic failure, and they started shedding load, resulting in rolling blackouts, and for some, just a complete blackout. According to Aircut, the grid was seconds or minutes away from complete failure when they started shedding load. Had they not started rolling outages, the grid would have been overwhelmed and equipment would have caught fire and power lines would have gone down, which probably would have caused worse blackouts than what they saw in Texas. And I liken this to uh, a controlled burn. So if you can, if you clean up some of the underbrush with a controlled burn in a forest, you can prevent a large forest fire that gets out of hand. And controlled burns are something that we do certainly in Alberta on a regular basis to protect our our forests from larger uncontrolled fires. And so by 
ERCOT taking some of the system offline or getting shedding load, they were able to prevent catastrophic failure of the entire grid, which, I mean, as much as the controlled outages are unfortunate, losing even 50% of your grid by a controlled outage is better than losing the entire thing completely. So because of these outages, it led to four and a half million homes and businesses without power for several days. There were shortages of water, food, and heat. And there were officially 246 deaths that were directly and indirectly related to this storm and this outage. And that's just what's official. The estimates are as high as 700. So of the issues experienced by the people of Texas, some pipes froze and burst, resulting in water disruption to over 12 million people. And by the end of the storm, the city of Austin alone lost more than a billion liters of water due to broken pipes. And I'm assuming that's a billion liters of treated water. That has a cascading effect of the different financial impacts and otherwise. The food shortages were due to the lost power at several stores, and the ones who remained open were completely cleaned out of staple items, which is not surprising. If you're living in this, you don't know when the power is coming back on. You don't know when you're going to be able to get the things you need. So you're, I mean, we saw this with COVID and the toilet paper panic that everyone went on in early 2020. People didn't know if they were going to have toilet paper. And so then everyone bought toilet paper. And I'm sure there's people that still have a stockpile from that time. So I'm not surprised that happened. And then there was a fire near San Antonio, which required firefighters to use a water tender, which is a truck that can draw water into its holding tank from a stream or river to fight the fire because the hydrant was unusable. Also compounding this due to licensing requirements, a shortage of plumbers led to months-long delays to repair pipes that had burst from this storm. Of the deaths, several hundred were from carbon monoxide poison from people running their cars or generators or their gas ovens indoors for heat. About a thousand doses of the COVID-19 vaccine were lost as a result of not being able to be stored or transfer them properly. Another consequence of the outages were the additional release of pollutants from stopping and starting fossil fuel infrastructure. Most of this infrastructure has a purge cycle to clear the burner as a safety function. Um, So the purge cycle, it flushes the burner of inert gas before and after every fire. There is also additional fuel used when cold starting an engine. So this pollution is estimated to account for one ton of carcinogen benzene, two tons of sulfur dioxide, 12 tons of natural gas, and 34 tons of carbon monoxide. That sounds like a lot of additional pollutants. I actually recently wrote a white paper on how to build HVAC systems that can function through your peak loads, but also throughout your extreme part loads, such as in the spring and fall, or as we call shoulder season, but also in in the winter when you may have high sun loads on your south face of your building that is is either pushing you into really, really low heating loads or potentially into cooling, depending on how strong the sun is and how good your windows are. And the amount of fuel lost or, or pollution that's caused from start stopping your natural gas burning appliances is is actually quite excessive. And in the in the white paper, we talk a lot about other ways to mitigate that, such as changing the output temperatures or or changing how you're controlling the system to prevent that short cycling from occurring and and keeping your boilers running longer, but maybe less hard, which prevents that short cycling. It's a really interesting white paper. Um, if you follow me on LinkedIn, you can you can find it there or on my uh, website as well. So while state officials tried to deflect blame, the failure to winterize power sources was the cause of the grid failure. 
If I remember correctly, Texas's senator fled to Mexico in the midst of this disaster, which is a pretty not cool thing to do. The federal report a decade before the 2021 failure warned Texas that the power plants would fail in such a winter storm, but it went ignored. We'll get to the storm that instigated this report in a minute. So costs for winter storm Uri's damage are at least 195 billion U.S. dollars, and that's, again, the official cost. There are likely significantly higher costs that were placed on the people of Texas to make accommodations for this. Uh, We're going to get into some of the electricity costs in a second here. That, I don't think, is factored into this 195 billion U.S. dollars. We talked about this before. In almost all cases, the cost of the failure and subsequent fines and penalties almost always outweighs the cost of doing it right the first time, which makes this so much more annoying. Get your stuff together, Texas. Some of the energy firms in Texas made billions of dollars, billions with the B, by charging extremely high wholesale prices. So they charged $9,000 per megawatt hour instead of the traditional $50 per megawatt hour. And it's been alleged that ERCOT held the price at the cap of $9,000 per megawatt hour for two days longer than necessary, which resulted in $16 billion in unnecessary charges. Then-CEO of ERCOT testified in court that he was following directives from the Texas governor when he allowed prices to remain at the inflated level. Other energy firms who couldn't charge the higher prices went bankrupt, and the cost of electricity on February 16th alone is said to be higher than the cost in all of 2020. Residents received about $200 per person to offset the higher electricity cost. That doesn't make a very big dent for those with a $5,000 bill. And I would be so frustrated if I lived in a place where during an extreme winter storm, I experienced outages and food scarcity and water problems. And after all of that, I got a $5,000 bill. I would be so pissed. I would, oh, I would be so mad. I would move, honestly. I would move. I'd be like, you guys don't know what you're doing. You have, you don't have control on this. You're not accountable to yourselves. I don't want to be, I'm not going to contribute to this anymore. You know, Maybe this this animal is too big to change, but I don't have to participate in this ridiculousness any further, and I would probably move, but that's just me. So like we mentioned, there were a couple other storms um, through kind of Texas history in the last 20, 30 years where they saw similar type events. So in December of 1989 and February of 2011, there were also very similar cold winter weather events, and these storms saw temperatures the same or slightly colder than the 2021 storm. So in the 1989 storm, there was less market competition and more oversight, although they still experienced outages and issues due to the weather. While there were still rolling blackouts in 1989, they lasted less than 10 hours rather than 4 days. So quite a bit different, like 12% of what the, what the 2021 storm was. On Groundhog Day, February 2nd, 2011, a blizzard hit Texas and caused rolling blackouts for 75% of the state. Many roads were impassable, and there were boil water advisories for several areas. In 2011, while there was more competition, the weather was not quite as bad as 1989 or 2021, and the outages were limited to 8 hours at most. After the 2011 storm, the North American Reliability Corporation, who we talked a lot about in episode 37 of the 2003 Northeast blackout, recommended several upgrades to protect Texas's infrastructure and prevent a similar winter blackout. Unfortunately, 
the powers to be in Texas ignored these recommendations due to the cost of winterizing the systems. I'm pretty sure the cost of winterizing the systems was much cheaper than the entire cost for this storm in 2021. Yeah, and I understand that winterizing these systems costs money, but I find it hard to believe that the state of Texas can't afford to make some upgrades to their system to protect their people. I don't really believe that. It's a matter of prioritizing things that are important. And these power outages during a storm as cold as this and, you know, up to 700 people dying because of it is something that probably should be prioritized to make sure it doesn't happen again. And I and I also realize that this stuff takes time. This stuff does not happen overnight. But I think there were similar issues, not as severe by any means as the storm in 2021, but it doesn't seem like a lot of these things have, a lot of these upgrades or or changes, recommendations have been implemented even now. Best we can tell, everyone's pointing fingers at everyone else, and there hasn't been a lot done to protect Texas from another winter blackout. And if you're listening to this in Texas, I said this already, you might want to move or take some steps to run your house off the grid in case another storm comes through. Install some type of generator that you can run fairly easily. Or, I mean, maybe just go on vacation for all of February. These storms seem to be pretty consistently in February. So just be on vacation. I don't know. I don't know. I wouldn't I wouldn't want to live through this uh, once, let alone multiple times. And I think that whatever you need to do to protect yourself from from this happening again, I think I think it's those are important steps to take if you can. So there you have it. The 2021 Texas power outage, a lack of interconnect to the east and west grids, money not spent on upgrading electrical infrastructure to deal with winter storms, and conflicting weather model data led to a catastrophic electrical shutdown for over 9 million people. For photos, sources, and an episode summary from this week's episode, head to failureology.ca. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to Failureology so more people can find us. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failureology. You can email us at thefailurologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can message us on our Patreon page. And check out the show notes for links to all of these. Thanks everyone for listening and tune into the next episode where we'll talk about Swiss Air Flight 111. A flight from New York to Geneva crashed off the coast of Peggy's Cove in Nova Scotia. Bye everyone. Talk soon. <laughs>